For those of you who like planning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke really through the end of December, kind of this walk towards Christmas. And so you can just know that when you come uh, Sundays now through about the end of December, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to begin that, that study today. But before we do, let me, let me lead us in a word of prayer. God, we are so thankful that we have uh, an opportunity to gather corporately together to study your word. Or that we're able to, we're able to come together with other brothers and sisters and, and journey through your word together. Apply your word richly to our lives that we might live them out in community one with another. God, I thank you that you call us not to individual lives sent out, but you call us corporately as a body of gathered believers, your body, your son, its head, and you call us to live our lives out together. God, I thank you for that sweet grace. Father, this morning we pray that you would uh, be about the business of restoration, that you would be restoring some of us to yourself, that you would be restoring husbands to wives, wives to husbands, children to parents, those of us who have become alienated from our friends, that you would be restoring us in those relationships through the power of your gospel, that you would be compelling us to act, compelling us to surrender. God, we pray that we would be a people fully surrendered, wholly relinquished, all in with Jesus. God, we pray that that's who we would be this morning. We pray that that would be our heartbeat throughout the week, that we would live out the implications of the gospel in the workplace, in the marketplace, and in our homes. God, that we would be so burdened by the sacrifice of Jesus that it would overflow into every aspect, every facet of our lives. God, that you would cause us to be gracious as you have been gracious to us in the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. God, that you would cause us to be forgiving as you have forgiven us in Jesus. God, that you would cause us to be loving as you have loved us in Jesus. Father, we pray those things for ourselves. We pray those things for our community. God, we recognize that we are a community filled with churches and still yet filled with lost people. These things should not be so. And so, God, toward that end, we pray for personal revival in each and every one of our hearts that you would burden us for your word and that from that burden you would see us carrying the message of hope and salvation to the lost. God, we pray that you would give us strong churches in Greenville, Texas and Hunt County, Texas that we would be able to see historically uh, uh, an increase in faith, an increase in salvations from the outpouring and the efforts of the many churches of our community. God, we pray for their pastors, that you would help them to be men wholly surrendered to you, wholly obligated and dedicated to you and to you alone. That each of their actions would be seen and would, would, be, would be understood and, and, and undertaken out of a desire to please you, out of a desire to serve you and not themselves. And so God, we pray that you would help them to be men wholly dedicated to you. That your spirit would come in and guide them in each and every way. And so God, we pray this morning that you would give each of the churches of our community a rich time of worshiping the king this morning that they would see men and women surrender their lives to those ministries, that we would see their membership increase, not for the sake of counting, God, but for the sake of those representing souls saved and souls put on the battlefield of your war against death. God, we thank you that you have already declared victory in Jesus and that we are moving forward in declaring victory, calling men and women to freedom, calling men and women to forgiveness, calling men and women to salvation and that in Jesus Christ. Father, as we spend the next couple of months working through these first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, 
that our end would be the same as Luke's as he sought to secure their understanding, support their understanding, make them strong in what they know and believe. God, that you would make us strong in what we know and believe so that we might be more effective in spreading the gospel. God, would you give us focus? Would you give us clarity? God, would you give me focus and clarity this morning? Help me to say the message that needs to be communicated to each and every one of our hearts this morning and that you would also apply it to my own. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. We're gonna be in Luke 1, 1 through 25. I'm not gonna read it all at the beginning. We're just gonna walk through it kind of bit by bit. Notice when the gospel of Luke picks up, it has been about 400 years since recorded prophecy. And so Malachi ends and there is a gap much more significant than that probably one dividing page in your Bible. So Malachi is the last word of God in the Old Testament. He is the last of the minor prophets. You might have heard it called the book of the 12. He's the last one of them. And, and the word of God is, is somewhat silent, but God himself is still moving he's still doing things he's still accomplishing his end but when the gospels pick up when Matthew Mark Luke pick up and and, and John pick up it, it is again it's recorded it's the events of Jesus going out and he is doing what he is communicating the gospel but Luke begins his gospel account his story of Jesus in a decidedly different way he begins it with John the Baptist now I don't know if you're anything like me but But I I used to have this habit of whenever I'd pick up a book, I would not read the introduction, I would not read the preface, and I would count those as like, somebody say, well, how much of the book you read? And i say, I've read 20 pages. Really, I'm on page, you know, two, and there were 20 pages of introduction and preface, but it sounds very impressive. And so I would not read the preface, I would not read the introduction until it really kind of bit me. It it, it became rather unfortunate. I was taking a, a class in seminary when I was working on my master's, and it was uh, an ethics class, interestingly enough. And uh, professors always say, you know, read it carefully, read it like a love letter. You know, I, I just want to be like, I've never gotten a whole lot of those. I don't know. I don't have this skill. And so I skipped the introduction, skipped the preface. And one of the, uh, one of the questions on that little quiz, it was an intensive class. It was eight to five every day for a week. And one of the first questions on that quiz was, in the introduction, the author, you know, gives a tribute to two people. Who are they and how are they related to him? Well, I'm, I'm missing points left and right. I don't know who they are and I don't know how they're related to him. In fact, I didn't know that the author and the co-author were brothers. Um, it was embarrassing. Those were gimme points and I did not get them. They got me. And so I'm not, I'm not a person that reads a lot of introduction. I'm not a person that reads a lot of, of preface and upfront material. And, 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 and I think we have the tendency when we read through the Gospels, like we want to get to Jesus. We want to get to Jesus. We see Jesus as the heart of the Gospel account, and truly that is right. And so when we get to the Gospel of Luke, we're not really sure what to do with it. We're not really sure how to evaluate it because we get there and it's, it's, it's somebody from the supporting staff. It's, it's, it's preface. It's introductory material. It's, it's, it's B footage, you know, B roll footage. It's, the this other songs on the album that you don't really listen to. It's, it's this stuff in there that you read it and you say, well, this is good, or this is wonderful. This is really just setting up the, uh, the landscape for me. But I don't really understand what in the world it has to do 
with the economy of grace and of God's direction. Well, hopefully, what we'll begin to see over the next couple of weeks is these things are decidedly important. God, in all his wisdom, in all of his sovereignty, deemed it necessary to include these things in Holy Scripture. And as we read them this morning, we read them with the understanding and the expectancy that we are to get something out of this. It should make a difference to our lives. It is not just giving us additional information, but it should lead to life change in us as we begin to more further understand the full manifold of who God is. And so let's walk through 1 through 25 together this morning. Look at 1 through 4. Luke writes and he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some, some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And so effectively what we see is that Luke was not himself an eyewitness. He says, some people were eyewitnesses, I was not. You've heard of them, I've heard of them. And so effectively, if you imagine Luke has segments of the Gospel of Mark, he's got segments of the Gospel of Matthew, and he's, he's kind of piecing these together, and he's talking to eyewitnesses, and what he's doing is putting all of these things into one document. Well, really, what it becomes is two documents. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. And so if Luke is the story to Jerusalem, then Acts is the story from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Do you see that? And so what he's doing there is is putting down an orderly account of all those things which have taken place. And so what we see throughout the Gospel of Luke, it's, it's, it's a story of God about Jesus. It's a story of God about Jesus. And so he's putting down this most excellent account, and he says it's to this guy named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus' name means friend of God or, or lover of God, depending on how you translate that second half. Now, this could have been a man. It could have been a group. It could have been a governor. There are a variety of things attributed to the recipient to this person. But look what he says there. He wants to give him an orderly account. For what reason? Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Say, God desires for me to have certainty. Or don't say it, but, but really it would be kind if you guys would say it. Say, God desires for me to have certainty. I should have said, God desires for me to be sure. Certainty makes you kind of nervous, I guess. But God desired for Theophilus to have certainty. God desires for you and I to have certainty. The Gospels exist not so that you might read these things and walk away saying, huh, I know a little bit more, but the Gospel of Luke, these things we're reading, these things we are studying, go in and support your faith. This is not front matter of faith. These are the very building blocks to lead to the surety of your faith. He wants us to understand. He wants us to have certainty. He does not want it to be ambiguous. He doesn't want us to be lost saying, I just don't know, are these things true, are these things false? He's writing it in such a way as to produce certainty in us. If there's a degree of uncertainty to your faith, then what Luke would have us do, what God would have us do is dedicate ourselves to the steady reading and ingestion of his word. He's giving these things to Theophilus so that he might have certainty concerning the things he was taught. At some point he came to faith, and Luke is seeking to buttress, to support, to give strength to that faith. Now look how he begins this story. Look how he begins this this gospel narrative account. Verse 5. 
In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And so he's telling us about the people that are going to be involved in this narrative account. Look what he says about them. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So he's, he's casting the setting for us. This is sometime prior to the birth of Jesus. You've got Herod on the throne. Mark Anthony had, had allowed him to be king over this area. And four years later, after he became king in, in B.C. 37, he began to reign. And so it's at some time during his reign, close to the birth of Jesus, he begins to enter into this story. And he's talking to us about a man named Zechariah and a woman named Elizabeth. Now, interestingly, if you know this account, if you've read this story very often, Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. For 400 years, they waited. For 400 years, you had false prophets rise up. For 400 years, you had false messiahs come on the scene, incite a military rebellion, and be struck down. For 400 years, you had men and women wait for God to do something. Luke begins his account of the gospel and he introduces his character whose name means Yahweh remembers. God's remembrance of his people spurs him to action. Look, what, look at the way he describes Zechariah and Elizabeth. These aren't nondescript, nothing people. These aren't nondescript, nothing people. He goes in and look how he describes them. He describes them very much the same way that you and I would also like others to describe us. He says that they were righteous before God, both of them walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They're good people. They're good people. These are people that you would like to spend time with. These are people that if you were to describe somebody that is close to the Lord, you would describe people in line with Zechariah and Elizabeth. These are the type of people that you would describe. These are the, see, these are the types of people that we seek to grow up into. These, in, in our parlance, in our understanding, if somebody was a Christian and this is kind of how you want to describe them, you said they're a very solid believer. They're a mature believer. They're, they're full and strong in their faith. So he goes in and describes them. And he gives us the understanding that these are people who not only love God, but their love from God leads them to follow God in each and every way that they walk out their faith. Look at how he describes that. They walk out. They're blameless in walking out these things. Now, this is important. It's not just that, that as people saw them in the community, they said, oh, 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 well, Sarah, I mean, she's, she's a sweet girl. She's, she's righteous and blameless. You know, like, what do you know about her? Like, well, I see her on Sunday. So what do you know about Larry? Oh, he's righteous and blameless. Well, when do you see him? Well, I see him on Sundays. These people, as they were known in community, were known as people who were walking out, living out their faith in God each and every day. This does not make them puritanical. It does not make them legalists. It makes them lovers of God. Licentiousness, being able to do whatever you want and, and just who cares about the consequences or hedonism, living solely for the desire of flesh and Christianity are not compatible. As a Christian, you are a slave to righteousness. Paul's words, not my own. 
and they are living out this precursor of the gospel in their lives. They love God, and they love serving God, and it's easily seen as they engage in the life of the community. It's important that we know this. Look at verse 7. We've got this couple that is described as being close to the heart of God, and then we get into verse 7, and we recognize that according to the others that would see them in this first century, they would likely think there's something wrong with them. Look at verse 7. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. They're old. They're old. Now, we've got an eight-day-old. I feel old. That's just not sleeping. But physically, they were old. The text says in the Greek, they had many days. They had lots of days. And so there was a long time where they were trying to have children, presumably. And the men and women in their society, in their community, saw them. And they said, something must be wrong with Zechariah. Or something must be wrong with Elizabeth. Because they have no children. They were judged, as some in our society are, for having no children, and it was presumed by those in their community that they had done something wrong, that they had sinned against God somehow, and thus he had not opened her womb, to use biblical language, to receive the fruit of a child. She was barren. She did not have a fruitful womb. She had no children. They had no children to show for their marriage. They had no uh, relatives to live on for them. They had none of that. And they were old. This gives us an indication that there is not much time left for them to to try and have kids. It's not for lack of trying. They're not young and full of, you know, vim and vigor. They are old. You get it? Everybody say, they're old. You see, you said that just fine. Some of you didn't say earlier because you might be able to say, I'm old. But look, he says that they are, they're old, they're advanced in years. And so we get the understanding that there's this tension at play here. Holy, righteous before God, walking out blamelessly in all his statutes, but they're not seeing the blessing of God coming through children. And so there's some tension there. We don't really understand what's going on. Look what he goes on to say. Now, verse 8. Now, why he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, now um, it's interesting in this that Zechariah, being of this order of Abijah, they would have roughly 56 priests or men go forward to serve at any one time. In your individual family, you would serve two one-week uh, deals per year, and so you'd go and you'd serve for a week, and then you'd go back home at some point later, you'd go and you'd serve for a week, but there were 18,000 men qualified to serve in this role. 18,000 men qualified to serve in this role. I did some, some research this week, just kind of looking at some different things, trying to see, well, what, what are the odds of all these things? What else is one in 18,000? I don't remember any of them, but I do remember something that's very important. There is a one in 10 million chance uh, that you're going to walk out of here and something's going to fall from an airplane and you're going to die as a result of it. One in ten million. And so if that happens to you, your spouse should definitely go buy a lottery ticket. Okay? You see that? You didn't? Okay. But really, if he's that unlucky, you must be incredibly lucky because you're walking beside him. He died and you didn't. You should buy that ticket. Now you get it. Okay. 
You guys were up this morning. I think Matt Queen must have been easy on you last week. I will speak to him for that. Look at this. There's one in 18,000 chance this guy gets to serve. Now, once you had served one time, you could never serve again in this role. And occasionally, the high priest himself would serve in this role. So there's a very slim chance that, that you would ever be able to serve this role in your entire life. And they would cast lots to see who got to go in and to burn the incense. And so as he's serving during the, one of these two-week spans, he happens to give the lot land on him, and it is the highest moment in his life. Never had any children. We don't know any other background. This is the single most defining, exciting moment of Zechariah's life. Imagine you spent your whole life recognizing there's a very slim chance you might be called up to do something honorific, something amazing, and finally it lands on you. And so really, you spent your whole life thinking, ah, probably never going to happen for me, but when it finally does, you're you're overwhelmed, your nerves, your stomach's twisted and turned. And what we see is that it lands on Zechariah. We already see the hand of God providentially moving in this couple's life. This is why Luke wants us to understand that they were not barren because they had done something wrong. They were barren because God wanted to demonstrate his power and his glory and his might in this most unlikely of couples. Look what it says. He goes in, as was the custom of the priesthood, the temple of the Lord, to burn incense, verse 9. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of the incense. Now the people were gathered around, and, and in Psalm 141 and verse 2, you see prayer there is spoken, at, spoken of as incense. In Revelations 5, 8, when you see the 24 elders and they have these bowls, it says they're holding bowls of incense, and that incense is the prayer of the saints. So there's this commonality between prayer and incense. And so when the priest would set the container of incense on the hot coals, the smoke would rise, and it was meant to demonstrate, give off an odor and a visual indicator of the prayers of the people rising up before God. And so these people, they're outside praying, and we know from extra-biblical sources, and so things not found in the Bible, that this is what their prayer was. He's in there offering this incense, and their prayer was, May the merciful God enter the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. So you've got Zechariah, he goes in there, he's cleansed himself, he's prepared himself. This is the only time he's going to get to do this his entire life. There are no do-overs. So he's cleansed, he's prepared, his mind's ready, he's lived a holy and righteous life before God. And he carries this in there, and he sets it down on the altar, and he kneels down, puts his face to the ground, and prays. Imagine the weight Imagine the honor of praying for an entire nation of people. When you've got an entire group of people around you praying effectively that your prayer might be effective, that their sins might be atoned, that God might hear from heaven. And so Zechariah is praying with all of his might. He's prepared himself for this. He's ready for this. And face before God, he is praying, pouring his heart out before God. 
And at some point, he opens his eyes. And he looks up. And this man who is ready, this man who is prepared, this man who is at the the crowning achievement of all things ministerially and personally he's ever done his entire life is dumbfounded. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell on him. Now, the ESV really smooths out the language there, but this is what you might be able to imagine. Zechariah is down, he looks up, and he sees this fiery figure, this glowing figure right there in front of him, and he is terrified, terrified. For 400 years they'd gone on and had not visibly seen God move. It seen charlatan after charlatan rise up and steer people in the wrong direction, but here he is before a holy God, and his angel comes and stands before him, and he is terrified. Terrified. If he was nervous before, man, he is shaking like a leaf. Troubled is the kind way of saying he had to check himself. Like he's just, he's, I don't know about you, but when I get scared, I don't scream, I recoil. Like I'm preparing to scream, I'm pulling everything inside me. This is what he's doing effectively, this is what the language tells us. He's pulling all that inside, getting ready to burst with terror. This is what he's doing. He's troubled, he's afraid, he's terrified. The angel looks at him and sees it. The angel says to him in verse 13, probably what some some of the most comforting words of Zechariah's life, do not be afraid. Looked at this man cowering on his knees, trembling. He offers a simple phrase, do not be afraid. He couples that with something Zechariah has been likely praying for his entire life. Now, we don't know the substance of his prayer. We don't know if he was praying for the redemption of his people. We don't know if he was praying for the Messiah or that he was selfishly praying for a son. But the amazing thing we find is that God unites all of those threads in one. God comes in and answers this righteous man's prayer in the most unlikely of ways. He says, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. He's old beyond reason. Wife has no kids. And he gets this information at really kind of an unlikely time. His expectation is that he would come in, set the bowl down. It would be the highlight of his lifetime. He'd go home. Elizabeth, it was awesome. This was me carrying the bowl. Like I almost tripped, but I got it there. And the incense came up and I prayed. Can I tell you I was killing it? It was an awesome prayer. I came out and, and I offered a blessing over the people and they're just like, thank you for that. And I'm like, one in 18,000. Thank you. Good night. But in this moment, God interrupts everything that he thought it would be and he has this angel come and give him completely insane news, this completely insane report, a personal report, not on behalf of the nation of Israel according to what Zechariah must have thought, but he says, you and your wife, you're going to have a kid. You're going to call him John, and you will have joy and gladness. 
And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For years, the substance, the hope for Zechariah and Elizabeth is that they would have child. And this angel is not lost on them, that they would rejoice at his birth. But beyond just them rejoicing, he says, many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine and strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And so we get this understanding that in this, in this place, Zechariah is given this wonderful news. Not only is he going to have a son, but his son is going to be well known before God. People will rejoice when they hear of him, and the Holy Spirit will indwell him even from his mother's womb. The importance of this is we see that even from the moment life begins at the conception of John the Baptist, God is already stirring in his life. Even at the moment of conception, God is stirring in the life of him. He has plans for this man that he will raise up for his purpose. What an amazing statement. That God would go into this life of this couple, and at the moment of conception, at the moment life begins, he would set John aside. That even in his mother's stomach, he would be met with the Spirit of the Lord. Look at verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And when he says this, he said something It hits right at the heart of who Zechariah is. Zechariah, in being a part of the priesthood and having a wife who's a descendant of Aaron, knows all about the word of the Lord. And they have waited anxiously for the fulfillment of Malachi. Flip over to Malachi. If you don't know where it is, hit Matthew and just keep turning left a little bit. I'm going to read two verses from there. This is what Luke has just quoted from the angel. Malachi 3, 1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then Malachi 4, 5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. When Zechariah hears the word of the angel, things begin to turn in his mind, and he has this understanding that people aren't just going to rejoice that he and his wife have finally had a child, that they've overcome barrenness, but that people will rejoice because they recognize in the coming of John means the coming of the Messiah. The reason God raised up John the Baptist is to prepare the way for Jesus. God, God in moving in, in the lives of this family, in setting it up, in establishing it 
that Zechariah would be that one in 18,000 in setting it up and going into a family that demonstrates incredible faithfulness in the midst of likely persecution by those around them because they presume them to be sinful on the basis that they have no child, yet they still walk blamelessly in all of God's commandments and statutes, this family. Their hearts were sold out for God, and God was sold out for them. And God met them in the midst of their faithfulness and raised up a child for them. And this child is so incredibly integral to the working out of the purposes of God. Look what we see there. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi. As Luke records it here, he says, He will go before him. Who is him? He will go before Jesus in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And he will make ready the Lord a people prepared. He will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John is not the main character of the Gospels. Zechariah and Elizabeth are not the main characters of the Gospels. You and I We are not the main characters in our lives. Jesus Christ should be the main central character in each and every one of our lives. And each and every one of us play a supporting role in advancing his story. This is not bad news for us. This is not bad news for us. It's a tremendous burden lifted. So many of us, though, we have lived our lives as we are the most important, the most central figure, the most captivating personage that we could ever imagine that everyone should give credence to us. And for those of us who are so pridefully misunderstood, so pridefully confused, the message in this is that Jesus Christ is the most important figure in your life. If not, he should be. If you are, you should not be. And what this couple displays is tremendous faithfulness in the midst of being relatively unknown. And they walked out in that. They weren't living their lives waiting for their big break. They weren't living their lives wondering what's next. They were demonstrating tremendous faithfulness in the midst of nothing special. Just another childless couple living life faithfully before God. Amen. Amen. What we see is that in the midst of this faithfulness, God brings tremendous blessing upon them, and he gives a child so that he might be able to make ready the people to hear Jesus. How does Zechariah respond? We're not giving a time signature here, so we don't know how long he's still sucking breath, going, I imagine that went on for quite some time. He exhaled and did it again. This is what I would do. And so he is still struck with fear, reassured by the angel. And then Zechariah, somehow gaining composure in verse 18, says, How shall I know this? How shall I know this? In essence, look, I'm old. She real old. Don't tell her I said that. I'm old. She's... My wife is advanced in years. This is what he says here. I'm an old man. She's advanced in years. The angel of the Lord answered him. And look at how he gives credence. Look at how he gives Zechariah proof. I am Gabriel. He says, this is who I am. You've read about me in Daniel. Now you've met me face to face. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. 
and was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. In effect, he's saying, got to know who I am, and you got to know what this is supposed to be. Zechariah, this is good news for you. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So he sees Zechariah, faithful, righteous, walking out faithfully God's statutes and his commandments. He slips in this moment, which is an aberration for him in his life. This is not the course of his life. This is just a slip-up. This is just a mistake for Zechariah. And the angel says, you want to know how these things are true? On the basis of who I am, my function, and the fact that you're not going to be able to tell anybody about it until they come to be. Zechariah finds himself mute in the midst of this. He's silent. He's unable to speak. He's unable to communicate those things which have transpired. And the angel tells him that this is going to be the case. This is going to be the end of this until all these things come about, until they find their fruition, their conclusion, their climax. Now, while we've been going through the story of Zechariah, we've left some people out. And we pick them back up in verse 21. All these people gathered around praying that the merciful God would enter into the holy place and accept with favor the offering of his people. All these people gathered around. <clears throat> this is what they expected. Zechariah goes in, and effectively the clock starts in their mind. This is not a place where you hang out, stretch out your feet, and take, take your time. You go in. You set the bowl of incense down, you pray, and you would make your way out. Post-haste, you would seek not to be there a tremendous amount of time. So the people begin to worry. Oh, man. Oh, man, what do you think happened to him? I don't know, man. Just keep praying. Just keep praying. What do you think? What do you think is going on? I don't know. Just, just, just keep praying. Surely he'll, surely he'll come out soon. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. You see, these people expected Zechariah to come out and to, to offer this word from the book of Numbers, the one that Moses taught Aaron to say over the people. In Numbers 6, starting in verse 24, they expected Zechariah to come out and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. They were waiting for it. They wanted to hear the blessing pronounced over them. They wanted to see the priest emerge knowing that the incense had been laid on the altar for them, knowing that this blessing would come and cover them. And so we find them waiting and wondering what his delay is in the temple. And then verse 22, when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. What would be the first question they would likely ask him when he came out? What took you so long? What happened? They recognize on his inability to speak, on his inability to tell them what had happened, that he had seen a vision. And he is attempting this early form of ASL trying to communicate, but, but still he can't. It says he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of the service was ended, he went to his home. This is somewhere near the beginning of his week, likely. He still had to fin out, finish out that application, that, that, that time, that, that time of period, period of time. I'm going to get it right. You can imagine people say, could you draw it on the ground? Like, give us some dirt. Do some, do some stick figures. We've got a flannel graph. Could you show us? Like, what? Show. 
He's unable to communicate to them what had transpired, what had taken place. So he finishes out his duty, he goes home. Look at verse 24 and 25. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. She gets pregnant. Life exists in her. We know from earlier that the Spirit comes into that. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me and has taken away my reproach among the people. She perceives judgment from those around her. Reproach from among the people. She didn't know how to, how to handle the fact that she was now pregnant. So she kept herself hidden. She kept it a guarded secret. What we see in these first 25 verses in the Gospel of Luke is God used amazingly faithful people. People that if, if you were to write a, a novel and, and like Luke is unfolding the Gospel, they don't even get... They don't get very much. There's no extravagant characterization given for them. We don't know them very well. What we know of them is that they were faithful. What we know of them is that in the midst of a difficult life, they continued to display faithfulness before God. And he calls upon you and I to demonstrate that same faithfulness. You see, it is through their faithfulness... It is through his sovereignty that he raised up John the Baptist to come into the prayer of the way for Jesus so that Jesus might come into a people whose hearts and minds were ready to hear. So that John might arrive on the scene and baptize people for the repentance of their sins and then Jesus arrives on the scene and, and, and changes the substance of that message. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. God used an insignificant couple barren, everything going against them, to raise up a man who would prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus. In some of us, what he's doing in our lives, our insignificant, nothing lives in this small corner of the world, is using you to be introductory or preface material for someone else's life. He calls for you to be faithful in the midst of that. Recognize that the central character of all of our lives is Jesus. It is not ourselves. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we begin to live out our purpose in life. Your purpose in life, if you are a Christian, is to magnify Jesus. It's not to grow your business. It's not to have the best marriage possible. It's not to make as much money as you possibly can before you die. Your purpose in life is to magnify Jesus, to glorify God. If you find that to be bad news, that's an indication of your heart before God. But if you find that to be the most joyous, freeing, wonderful news you've ever heard, that God already has your heart. And he can use your heart to impact the men and women around you, to make stony hearts soft, to make dead men alive, just as he made you move from death to life, as we read about in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Are you willing to be insignificant? Are you willing to be unheard of? 
Are you willing to be anonymous? Are you willing to be unknown? Are you willing that two years after you die, no one may know your name, but that all those you ever encountered would know Jesus' name? What we see in the account of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist, who would surrender his life being faithful to God. God's not looking for the most talented. God's not looking for the richest or the prettiest. God is looking for faithful people who would be faithful in difficult times and who would make much of him over the course of their life so that they might lead others to make much of Jesus. Would you join with me as we pray that God would give us a heart, a desire to make much of Jesus? Would you join with me as we pray for those who have maybe not ever responded to the gospel? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, I thank you for the wonderfully freeing news that I am not the most important person in my life, that it is not my family, that it is not my children, that it is not my spouse or my job, my occupation. But Christ Jesus, you are the most central figure in my life as you desire to be the most central figure in all of our lives. God, I pray for the lost among us, those who are still living their lives to satisfy themselves, to prove themselves, or they just have no need for your son. God, that as they encounter your word weekly, as they encounter your word through us and us communicating the gospel, that they would find certainty of belief, just as Luke wrote to Theophilus, seeking to provide certainty for belief. God, that they would come to believe that you orchestrated these things, that you raised up this family, that you caused them to have a son born at a right time, that he might prepare the way for Jesus, that Jesus might come being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that being fully God and fully man, that he would die on a cross to save us from our sin, that we might be brought close to you. And God, that you might raise him from the dead three days later, that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. God, that you would convict them of this, that you would call them to move forward in repentance, that you would proclaim them to be righteous on the basis of forgiven sins, not their ability to get it right, but their ability to recognize that Jesus always has gotten it right. So God, we pray that you would stir in the hearts of the unbeliever. God, we pray that you would stir up faithfulness in the heart of the believer, that you would call on us to be faithful before you all our days. God, help us to walk faithfully in your statutes and in your commandments, Father, and joyously to do so, to serve with the good pleasure of our King. God, that you would knit our hearts together as we sing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.